Chris. I'm Chris. And I'm Shane. And I have some great news for you guys, which we're going to get into in my car update. Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm super excited. Really, really happy. Uh, we've got a history. Not. I don't even know that I want to call them history episodes. We have, like, a, we have a story. We have a story we have a, for a you guys. a true story to tell you guys. I'm excited. I don't know really what it is. I have kind of an inkling, but not really. So I'm kind of it's curious. It's the 150th year anniversary of a major manufacturer. Wow. That's incredible. So we'll get into that Yeah, story. that sounds rad. Um, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's take a minute to talk about Petrolbox. You guys know that Petrolbox is a monthly subscription service just made for car guys. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, t-shirts. I wear some of their t-shirts every every week. They get uh, garage gear, tools, stickers, publications, and they'd send them right there to your doorstep. There's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrolbox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month. That's like that's the 87 octane, the basic risk, because then you have Petrobox Premium, <laughs> well, which is obviously I 91 think we octane. This, I think we should do this. I think we should do Petrobox Basic is Premium. Okay. okay, we'll call it premium. And then Ooh. Petrobox Premium Premium is... Uh, That's race gas? It's it's race gas or non-oxy. Okay, well, for that one, <laughs> you get even more gear, the Petrobox Premium, for $39.95 a month. So check those guys out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month order. So I stopped at the body shop on my way down here. Okay. They said, hey, why don't you come down and take a look at what we're doing so far? And last time they said that, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> it was all bad news. This right. time, all good news. So okay. last time we mentioned this, we had to talk about the car being cut up and put on a select bench. Right. Didn't have to do any of that. Really? Turns out things were uh, a little bit easier than they were originally thought. So they were going to get the fixtures from Select. Right. And turns out they're stuck in customs and it's going to be like five weeks. Oh, before. do they come from overseas? Huh? No, I don't think they necessarily come from overseas, but these did because the rest are out. Like oh, they, okay. if they're, if they're all out, maybe they order more. I don't know. Anyway, can't get them. What are we going to do? So they use this, something called a spinny C machine. I think a is, spinny C a, machine, a spinny C machine. I well, don't think that's what it's called. It's called a spinny C. It's like, I think it's a spinny C. If someone's going to just, <laughs> kill me that if doesn't wrong. sound like a thing it's basically it's a 3d measuring tool so it, it's a is big, it lasers it, no it is a big computer that's got an articulating arm and you oh and it's got a little point on it it's like a phantom arm yes so you put it on a point and then you move it in 3d space right you know xyz to another point it tells you how far those points are together in uh up down and uh x y and z axis yes. chris so not just two dimensions of left and right it also includes in and out so, <laughs> <laughs> yes, up, down, in, out, X, also known as X, Y, and Z in space. Yeah, all these different axes. So, it turns out that my car was a lot better than they originally thought it was once they started measuring. Okay. So, they just ended up putting it on, uh, put it on a bench, just uh -huh. a regular bench, and they just tugged it a little bit and got it dialed. Oh, they, they didn't even have to cut They didn't weld. have to cut anything. And he goes, dude, I measured, I'm really proud of this, okay? Yeah. He goes, dude, I measured all your work. It's all ones and zeros. That means it's all either perfect or maybe one millimeter off. Wow. So I did a really good job, and I'm not one to brag, but I feel really, <laughs> really good about it. Yeah. You know, because I was kind of feeling crappy that I right. that You did all this work. You spent all this money, and it basically, a lot of it was going to have to not be redone, but more was going to have to be More was going to have to be done. But so more did have to be done, but not anywhere near as much as originally expected, and my work is ones and zeros. So I'm going to just 
bring up ones and zeros as much as possible because <laughs> I'm the ones and zeros guy. It could have been one followed by four zeros millimeters off. Maybe and that's what he meant. He did. Uh, he also told me he's like, yeah, the underside of the car was this car ever beached or beached? Off? I was like, well, yeah. multiple times yeah. on some logging roads. That's a distinct possibility. Yeah, beached. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so they're doing uh, that's all done. The car's straight. Okay. Um, the Porsche factory fenders needed a lot of work. Really? Yeah, they needed a lot of work. And he's like, you know, you can um, actually Porsche try to fix the fenders too. He's like, you check this spot out right here. And he turned the fender around and there's a lot of pick marks on oh. the back of the fender. He's like, it was straightened here. It was bent here. So Porsche tried to do a really good job to deliver a good product. Gotcha. But in terms of fitting on my car, of course, they yeah. needed a little bit more work. So I guess, um, yeah. the fuel door wasn't quite right with my fuel door hmm. or something, or maybe it came with a fuel door. I don't know. Fuel door needed adjustment. And uh, he rolled the fender flares flat for me, which is going to be nice. The the lip. On yep. the, so yeah, just exactly. so I don't rub on anything because yep. I like to be pretty low. And uh, yeah. Oh, the doors. The bottom of my doors were rusty. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. Which is something that... <clears throat> I was going to fix later, Okay, but as I th as the car is there and as they're doing all this work, I'm like, you know what? Just fix the doors. Right. So they're going to reskin the bottom half of the door for because me. Because it is probably going to be cheaper than the one you were expecting before if they had to do the full cut. And right. Because they're already in there. Right. They're already going to have to paint the fenders and they're going to have to now they were going to blend the doors anyway. Yep. So I said, you know what? Just do the door skins, get it done. So my car is going to be cherry pie after all this. <laughs> I'm really, really excited to see it. Um, they did order a couple extra brackets, something. So, you know, there, there's like the little, uh, ear that goes on the end of the torsion bar that allows you to adjust ride height. Yeah. It's got a little screw in it. Yeah. So basically what you do is it's the stop for the torsion bar. Exactly. Um, I don't know how to explain this to people that don't know how torsion bars work, but basically when the suspension compresses, it rotates the torsion bar and the torsion bar itself. It's a twisty spring. It's a twisty spring. Right. Just imagine taking a piece of rebar and twisting it with your hands and the sprung, uh, resistance of that metal is basically your spring, right. but that has to catch on something or it can't spring, spring back. Right. So there's like this little adjustment that's this keyed ear. Which is why it's so easy to lower these cars. Yeah, at and least a lot of trucks front. have this too. Yeah, like my, Tahoe's my and Hummer stuff. has this. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's not uncommon. No. But I forgot to put the screw in the in the adjuster Okay. when I put it on the tow trucks. I was like, I got to get this thing out of here. I just keep whatever. So I forgot to put that one in so on one it, side. Okay. So it was just low, just slammed. Oh, right. Okay, so yeah, it was yeah. just super slammed. So they had to order a new one of those because I it's on the tow truck or on 694 or somewhere. Right. Just gone because gotcha. it fell off. So other than that, I think we're good to go. A couple, awesome. two, three weeks, I'll have the car back. And wow. the, the guys, the guy that's helping me do the car, he has a 914. He's oh, a cool. super cool guy. He's um, his name's Joe. And I, they, they've been really great. I mean, he's super Good. like, oh, yeah, I adjusted this an eighth of an inch and got it just right. And, you know, uh, there was a little bit of a dip on this fender, on this passenger fender. So we're going to get that dialed in. We don't want that. And we're going to do it with the metal. We're not going to do filler. So he sat there and fixed the fender. And uh, they have this 356 that's right next to my car that yeah. in probably 1973 was rolled into a tree. Oh, geez. And at some point, somebody put polyester body filler all over the car, which is <laughs> which is not... That's what they used to use. It's polyester body filler? It's polyfiber or something like okay. that, he said. But it's not waterproof. So it just oh, kind no of like kidding. collects water and stuff like that. So they had to take it all off. And underneath, the thing is Swiss cheese. Oh, but man. with screws. Someone's... Because they had to... They drilled <laughs> holes in it, and then they would thread the thing in, and then they would yank it. And oh, that's sure. how they would get the metal straight. But the thing just looks like it was shot with buckshot. 
the wow. whole side of this 356. Super cool car, but they're fixing that as much as they can with all metal work. Yeah. It's really, really neat. I'm kind of scared of what the bill is going to be with how detail-oriented Joe is with my car. <laughs> I'm like, like, oh, man. Joe, don't be that anal about it. So there's a bumper bracket missing. Okay. That I didn't order. Like, I just don't. Because when the previous oh. body shop did my car, yeah. they just put, like, they put a big screw through the fucking bumper. Nice. Right? Just like, okay, yeah. thanks a lot. These guys actually ordered the correct bumper bracket. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I made sure to get the Porsche factory bolts for this because I wanted to make sure they were right size. So I'm like, dude, please, <laughs> just go to the hardware store. I don't need a yeah. $7 bolt. Well, you're getting thing. it. Yeah, I'm getting a seven dollar bolt, but eight dollar yeah, so, nut too. Yep, yep. That's and the brackets and the all. He's they're just ordering all Porsche factory parts. Oh, jeez. And I'm like, uh, well, I don't want to tell him not to, right? Because I just want them because then do, it'll go the other way, and you'll start getting. Nope. I just want them to do the job that they're going to do. Yeah. And uh, I'll just be the ones and zeros guy. And uh, you know, I wonder what it would cost to pay someone else. You know, I was talking to Chad. Uh, 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 SCI performance friend right, of mine yeah. on the way over. He's like, he's, no one will ever care about the work that you do on your car as much as you do. Right. And I'm thinking, well, what would it cost to pay a guy to do a ones and zeros job where everything is almost perfect with the front pan? Right. Versus Joey's body shop that's just going to slap it in there. Yeah. You know, what What would that cost? Like 15 grand to have like a real guy do it on a select bench where it's ones and zeros? Yeah, probably. I mean, so it's just, you say, I saved a ton of money. But are you ever going to get that money back out of it? I know you think you can when you go to sell it and say everything's been done everything's straight everything's good there's there's a case of some for sure but it's less the the money that you're getting back i mean i will get some money back i think but it's also hey it's been done it's easier to sell there's less questions it's just you don't have to explain anything to anybody you don't have to make any compromises nobody's gonna look at this and go oh well it's got this so i want this much money less you know people are always you know whenever i go look at a car i look for what's wrong with it not what's right necessarily at least in the negotiation process yeah i see what you You go okay well this thing you know the battery says it's 2009 okay so (laughs) i may not be able to start it in five minutes i didn't tell the rest of the story about that 944 turbo i went to look at i explained the guy how to read date codes on tires oh no and what he's were, like, oh, my gosh. They were from, like, 02. Okay. Well, that's pretty old. Yeah. Were they, like, hockey pucks? Oh, yeah. yeah. They were terrible. That's why I was, like, scared when I was test driving it. I I wanted to, like, get on power in a corner and get it to come out a little bit, but I did not. They just let go oh, so weirdly. Yeah. yeah. They're, 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 that kind of tire is sketchy. Yes. Super sketchy. Yes. But yeah, I think there's money to be made. Yeah, for uh, sure. Especially, I've, you know, I've had people... Just because they thought my car was nicer than it really was at one point, just because it was shiny, which is the case for a lot of cars like this. They okay. look really shiny, <laughs> but you kind of look underneath and you go, oh, man. Not so shiny. Not so shiny. But I have people all the time just saying, hey, do you want to sell your car? I'm like, no, not really. And they go, well, what's your don't want to sell it price, which is always the question, right? What's your don't want to sell it price? I'm like, I don't want to sell it. And one guy offered me $80,000 for my car. I remember that. And was I'm that like, serious? That was, who knows? Okay. You know, there's people with money that just want things. Okay. They want things. I don't know if it's the, the car has been in magazines or it's been so well-traveled and photographed. I don't know. Right. But uh, I was just in my head. I'm like, dude, no. This car is <laughs> not worth $80,000. It's not worth it. Right. You know, it, at the time with the with the pan the way it was, it was probably a $45,000 or $50,000 car. Yeah. Not an $80,000 car. But no. here's the thing. Now that it doesn't need anything, where is it? <gasps> Jake, I forgot I, I'm buying something. What? I'm buying something. <laughs> That was abrupt. What yeah, are you I buying? just remembered because it slipped my mind because I haven't bought it yet. I'm waiting for these things to be taken off the car. Is it a birthday so that, present for me? 
Christmas, uh, my birthday coming up. When's your birthday? June 2nd. Oh, I'll have to put that on the calendar. Otherwise, I will never remember. Yeah. Um, no, it is not for you. It is for me. I bought or I am buying a set of 46 millimeter PMO carburetors with no. Yes. Yes. I got a good Ooh. deal on some a really good deal on some on some PMOs. And I'm just I, that, I almost want to just stop doing the podcast right now and text the guy and be like, hey, did those things come <laughs> off the car yet? Um, but I'm really, 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 really excited to get oh, those. Yeah. I yeah. love carbs. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll be a fun project to uh, to take all the CIS off the car yep. and put the carburetors on there. I'm slightly concerned with, um, you know, I go back and forth on reliability, right? Because you have right. uh, CIS, the continuous injection system by Bosch, yep. which is basically a metering plate that lifts up and allows more fuel pressure to flow through the continuously spraying injectors. Right, which, which is always hilarious on. because it's just forming puddles when the valves are closed. And then it, it seems that way, but you do have atomization happening. Yeah, so it's not I, like it's not like a garden hose, okay? <laughs> it is atomizing before it gets to the valves. Yeah. Otherwise, combustion would not occur, right? Right. <laughs> okay. You would just have a puddle. But um, but I did get good fuel economy with that. So I got maybe 26 miles per gallon okay. just cruising on the freeway. Yeah. I'm kind of, and, and it would work in the mountains. Not well. I would lose power. Right. It didn't have an O2 sensor. It was kind of dumb. It didn't really have any way of adjusting to elevation. It didn't. Right. I think even MFI pumps have like a, a barometric sensor in them. Oh, really? That helps with uh, elevation a little bit. Interesting. But I don't think that CIS has that. Maybe it I does. I don't know enough about um, it. I don't know. Good one. That's early CIS. It is. It is super early. CIS basic. I don't even know what it's called, but it's basic. No O2 sensor, nothing. It just has a warm-up regulator on the engine, which uh, adjusts fuel pressure a little bit based on, because right. it just sits on the engine. As the engine gets warm, it gets warm. And it allows <laughs> and it adjusts fuel then, pressure. Then you can adjust uh, the, the fueling a little bit. Um, but so with carburetors, I don't know. I'm probably going to get less fuel economy. Yeah. Most likely less fuel economy. Probably. And most likely going to have to change jets if I go to the mountains. Yes. Most likely. Yes. However, in terms of reliability, it shouldn't be that much worse. I would think it would be better because I don't have I don't have a warm-up regulator. I don't have a D-cell diaphragm. I don't have right. you know, a, a fuel distributor. I don't have these other things with CIS that can be a nightmare. Right now, mine works great because I yep. replaced and rebuilt everything. And it's got about 50,000, 60,000 miles on it, and everything works. However, if something does work, I cannot fix it on the road. I cannot. True. Like if that fuel distributor breaks or right. you know if you if if the warm up regulator takes a big dump and I can't get the car started, who know, who knows what what So could is go this going to be a project for this winter? Uh you're going to try to get it done before. I though? could probably put carbs on that car in a, a weekend. I bet I could I bet I could do it do in a You need to change the fuel pump. Um I don't you don't necessarily have to. Is that a returnless fuel system or a full return? It is a full return fuel system. Okay. Um, so if you put a regulator on it, you should be able to make that work. Correct. Yeah. Okay. You can put a, a fuel pressure regulator. The problem is, is that the CIS fuel pumps are like, a, I mean, 100 PSI. Right. 150 PSI. And you're bringing yeah. that down to two and a half. Yep. Yeah. My so, pump puts out four PSI, which is what you want. Right. So I can I can swap out the pump. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah, you know that's that's an easy solution to just put a different pump in there. Yeah, I've done that. I've done carbs on cars many, many, many no, times. No, I know you have. So it's I have not. I've always replaced the CIS pump. I've never used it, but I think you can use it if mm. you want to. But the proper way to do it is to probably. What just, are these these carbs coming off? Um, they're coming off of a short stroke three two. 
So a very similar setup. Very similar engine to mine. Very, very, very similar. Okay. And the guy also is selling all his twin plug stuff. And I'm like, no, I can't. I wish I could do that. I can't. He's got the twin plug distributor. He's got, you know, I'm like. What I'd is have, this guy doing? He's going to, uh, he's doing different. I think he's doing different cylinder heads. No, no, no. Here's what it is. He's staying twin plug, but he's going to complete standalone spark management oh. and uh, like MoTeC or something sure. like that. So he ne- probably needs a different distributor that has a uh, different type of hall sender or something like that to go with his um, with his ignition and his standalone gotcha. stuff that he's got going on. So all that's going away. Yeah. So I'm just getting the carbs. I'm really excited. I think um, the throttle response with my motor is going to be... sound Oh, my amazing. God. I'm just... I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. I can't believe I, I just need to just need to text this guy right now um but i but i but i won't so actually i'm going to while you tell us a little bit about oberk yes oberk car care oberk is a midwest manufacturer of polishing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers oberk products are designed to decimate swirls holograms and oxidation on your vehicle's paint whatever paint that may be it works with all manufacturers and types and also right now oberk is offering 20 percent off any order online with the code overcrest the discount code is good not only on oberkcarcare.com but also on car supplies warehouse.com and detailedimage.com wherever you shop for your detailing supplies and chris i gotta tell you i have this black car i keep talking about it i haven't polished it yet i need to get on this and i might i might get another black car what i might get another black car that will need some polishing are you thinking about getting that 944 still nope Oh, is there something else you're thinking about getting? Yep. Is this a surprise? Or can you just can we just talk about it after this ad? <laughs> yeah. So I'm uh I'm going to look at a 911 after this or want it what to. What do you mean after this? Like after this? Yeah. After this episode. Yeah. Okay. It's right on uh the other side of the cities. It's a 996. Okay. And it's a C2. C2 6 speed what black yep. black, black with on gray. Black, six speed. black on black. Nice. Yeah. How many miles? Uh, it's just shy of a hundred. And so I'm going to guess this thing is 18,000, uh, 14, nine. Oh, that's a really good price. It is actually. Yeah. What about, you know, everybody always talks about the IMS. I, I will just pay to have the IMS solution done. You're just going to pay somebody to do it. Yep. I know several people who have done them. Bjorn could do it. Bjorn. I have other guys at the Porsche got. Yep. Exactly. That's good. I, I look forward to, I mean, that's. I would really like a car too. The only thing that's, I, it's not a negative, but it's probably not how I would choose to spec it. It is a cab, but it comes with a factory paint matched hard top, which is kind of cool. So it's still. That explains the price. <laughs> now I understand. Yeah. But anyways, going to look at that. So that'll be interesting. Also, because that would replace the S3 if we sold that. Which I do have a, a finder's fee of 500 bucks. if anyone knows Ooh. anyone. Well, give out the details quick on the car. Oh, it's a 2017 Audi S3 Prestige. It is, I forget the name of blue. It's really pretty. It's not a, a it's regular a nice blue. blue. Uh, DSG, I don't know. Nice car. It's $500 finder's fee. So yep. spread the word. Yep. Post exactly. it on the Instagram page. I have. I'll post it again. Okay. Everybody can spread the word yep. on that. It's a good also, way to, easy way to make $500. Yes, it is. Super sad de- deal, Chris. Super sad news. Okay. Moment of silence. I sold the Harley. Oh, that's right. You did sell the Harley. So that lasted about five minutes. 
That was a All that. really, really spontaneous purchase that shouldn't have happened in the first place. <laughs> and you were so fired up about defending your purchase. I like that bike. I do like that bike. The problem is we're like, you know, tightening our belts with the economy and everything else and don't need payments on every single vehicle we own. Yeah. So it's just kind of looking at it and I'm like, oh, crap. These things are dime a dozen. They're, and they, yeah. the design hasn't changed in like 10 years. So you can pick up a 2002 one of these for like dirt Six, cheap. Six dollars. And it's yeah. the same exact bike as what I have in the garage that's brand new that I'm making payments on. So it's like, I need to offload this now. We're going to still recoup some of the money I have into it. Right. Yeah, that's good. Which I did. So that's sad. Well, not really. I don't think you're that sad about it at all, I'm to be honest. <laughs> all right, let's get into our main right. story. Chris, here. on this exact day. One funny thing. What? Before you start. So these carburetors. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I said, hey, can you send me a picture of the carburetors? Yeah. Can you send me a picture of them? Yeah. He sends me this picture. I'm like, it's a really good picture. That's a nice, nice photo. <laughs> did you take it? I did. He pulled it. <laughs> I took <laughs> I took pictures of this car for excellence back in the day, and uh, he sends me this picture, and it's a screenshot of my website that I originally had, where he could take <laughs> so a look like, at the picture. It says like cluelphotography.com slash like, I'm like, oh, this is a nice photo. So, oh, it's, it's mine. <laughs> like that, was, that was pretty good. Anyway, so tell me, tell me this, this story. Exact day, Chris. Way back in 1870, history was made. Now you see today marks the 150th anniversary of an Yaturo Iwahaski founded one of the largest companies in the world. Not just car companies, Chris, one of the largest companies in the world. Period. Awasaki was born Well, when you make everything from refrigerators to forklifts to other things. Yes, yeah. everything. Yeah. So Iwasaki was born in a little farming town in Akai Tosa province of Japan. He came from a family of samurai, but his great-grandfather sold the family's samurai status as the family fell into debt. Wait, wait, wait. So whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I had to look into this. Yeah, that doesn't that's I mean, not what you think of. So when I you, just when I think of a samurai, I think of Tom Cruise in the last samurai being like the white dude as a samurai. <laughs> Did they sell it to him? <laughs> no, so Tom we, Cruise, that's how he becomes the last samurai. He exactly. Just he just it. buys it. Yeah. <laughs> no, we think of samurai as these elite warriors, which they were, right? However, during the Tokugawa Shogunate, which was the government of Japan during the period of 1600 to 1868, samurai were basically, they lost their military function. This was an extended period without war. And while samurai were previously regarded as not only the highest form of warrior, they were also held as the highest class of society. Samurais. They were, yes. they were wealthy. Yes. They okay. were not only good warriors, they were also wealthy. But because there wasn't any war, it was all peacetime, so they didn't need to fight, their social standing became more important than their actual military prowess. So during this period, they became aristocrats and basically bureaucrats in society. However, fun fact, they did still have the legal right to cut down any commander who did not show proper respect. Wow. So if you are a samurai and you're basically like not a So if you can't catch a fly guy, with chopsticks, you're dead. No, it's more like you're a samurai, Chris, okay? You're not really a fighter anymore, but you still carry the sword and you're like, I'm an aristocrat, right? Yeah. And someone's like, oh, you're like, I don't know, they insult you or something? Yeah. You can just chop their head off right there <laughs> in the street. You can demand respect. Yeah. All right. So... Regardless, I, I guess you could sell your samurai social status during that time, 
which this guy's great-grandfather did. Which also doesn't make sense. So you can just basically say, well, I'm not a samurai, but I'm going to buy samurai status? I don't know, Chris. I don't know. Quit, quit looking at carburetors. No, 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 no. I'm looking up the Yakuza because I was trying to figure out if the Yakuza crime syndicate that's around now... Is that came from was, the samurai? Was, was came from samurais. That's... Uh, well, I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out information about samurais. They sound super interesting. They are. So without a high class and educated family to fall back on, Yatoro Iwasaki went to work. He founded a job or he found a job as a clerk for the government and began saving. Now, what do you think the first thing young Yatoro bought was when he had enough money? He's been saving for a, years and years. What did he buy? So I'm th- a samurai sword. He bought back his family's samurai status. Oh, wow. He bought back the status. He spent all of his savings, years of working. And well, now, this, this is Japanese culture. Exactly. I mean, it is That's, all about status, it's all about honor, honor, family. Yeah. Exactly. So with his social status reinstated, he was promptly promoted to the top position at the trading office in the company work that. <laughs> so That's like, one way to do it. Yeah, they're like, oh, you're a samurai now, officially? Okay, now you can get your promotion that you were probably do years ago. I don't, I mean... Yeah, it's a little different, isn't it? Yeah, that's a little odd. So this was in Nagasaki, and he was responsible for trading oil and paper to buy ships, weapons, and ammunition. Is this kind of like Spotify buying Joe Rogan? Yes, it is. (laughs) This is exactly what we're talking about. (laughs) All right. In 1868, Yaturo traveled to Osaka and secured his own trading rights along with the purchase of three old steamships. So he's basically like, all right, now I'm a samurai. I'm getting promoted in this company. I'm making it big. You know what? I don't need you guys anymore. I'm going to go do this on my own. So he bought these three old, outdated steamships, and basically you needed trading rights. So somehow he purchased those rights to be able to trade. I'm sure it's some sort of licensing issue. Sure. Uh, he He formed his own shipping company and quickly grew the business by becoming the first business to offer overseas mail delivery to mainland China. From Japan. From Japan. Okay. No one else was doing that, apparently. So Yaturo, clearly having pride in his family and heritage, named the company after his family's crest. Okay, so you spend this much money buying back your samurai status, you're probably proud of that family crest. Right. The crest depicted three overlapping leaves in a triangle so the name he chose for his company literally translated to three water chestnuts. So, Chris, would you like to learn some Japanese with me? Yes. Okay. I mean, so, so first thing, we're going to count to three in Japanese, okay? Okay. Hitoso. Hitoso. Futasoso. That's, that's not right. Futatusu. Oh, man. There's Futatsu. Some... And then Mitsu is three. Okay. Okay. So if you wanted to ask for a water chestnut, you would ask for a hishi. A hishi. Yes. So the name of the company what is... What if I want uh, Mitsuhishi? Yes. So that's <laughs> three water chestnuts. Exactly. Mitsuhishi or as we know it, Mitsubishi. Where'd the B come from? I, did, I think translation. It's just an American just it's allowed. Just, yeah. We're going to throw a B in there. They must be furious that Amer- Americans Mitsubishi. just walk around calling it Mitsubishi. It's Mitsubishi. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Well, in the coming decade, the company diversified and brought into industries and bought into industries, including shipbuilding banking, insurance, warehousing, paper, steel, glass manufacturing, electrical equipment, aircraft, oil, and real estate. Let's get this out of the way. Did this guy kill anyone? Did anybody slight this guy? I mean, why? 
I don't know, because I'm wondering if he'd used his samurai status to cut anybody's head off oh, or not. Oh, I see. Yeah, I think for the sake of the story, we can we can assume Yeah, some guy walked in and called it did. Mitsubishi, and they just cut and his head off. And it just beheaded <laughs> instantly. So, in fact, the growth of the Mitsuishi... I'm going to leave off the B from here on out. Sounds Mitsuishi. good. The growth of the Mitsubishi... Mitsu, I can't do Just it. say Mitsubishi. You're nope, not going to be able to nope. do it. You're not going to be able to do it. The growth of the Mitsuishi company played a central role in the modernization of the Japanese economy and Japan as a whole. Basically, this guy was just such and an industrial superpower. Win. This is early 20th century. Yes. Like 1915, 1920, yes. kind of in this period of time. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm going with. Okay. Yep. Uh, while Yatoro's family crest featured three water chestnuts, his company moved to the more stylized diamond shape that is still recognizable today. Yeah, I looked it up. Looks like the old. It was actually like uh, like the water chestnuts. It was three of them in a star pattern. Exactly. And then they went to the diamonds. Just, just probably be, to simplify. More stylized. Yeah. The, exactly. The other. It looks kind of stuffy and agreed. Yeah. It looks like an old crest. Yeah. As it looks opposed to, almost like a doily or something. It like does it. a little bit. So Yaturo seemingly had his sights set on the world stage, and so it makes sense. I always thought. What's that? While we're talking about the logo, mm-hmm. I always thought that the Mitsubishi logo was. An airplane propeller because they did a ton of airplane stuff. They do, yeah. And in World War II, they did. Well, I'm sure we'll get there. Yes, um, but, but they that's did. not where it came from. Right, it came from water chestnuts. That's interesting. All yes, right, go ahead. Uh, Yaturo had his sights set on the world stage, Chris. Even at this point, and it makes sense then that he sent his son Hisaya to the U.S. for school. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and took over the company in 1893. So we're not even to the 20th okay, century. Okay, we're not yet. even there. Uh, Hesea set up different divisions within the company, including banking, real estate, and marketing. Eventually, as we know, an automotive development group was founded. However, long before Mitsuishi Motors was created, the shipbuilding division of the company went ahead to create the first production Mitsubishi car. Their efforts gave birth to the Mitsuishi Model A, which debuted in 1917. So why would they call it the Model A? I don't know. They're starting at the beginning of the alphabet, Chris. Yeah, but Ford had a Model A around that time, yeah, too. Yeah, they didn't? also started at the beginning of the alphabet. Okay. Well, they think they could have been... Well, maybe the, they didn't even know. Maybe they didn't I know don't one. think they did. Yeah. Although his son did go to school in Pennsylvania. Yeah, he knew. Yeah, he knew. Yeah, I think he, he knew. probably might have done that. Actually, I bet now it wasn't that I'm called thinking the Model about a. it... I bet it was called something else in Japanese. Right. It, but it probably was the Model A in Japanese. Right. Which makes sense because actually now I'm thinking about it in a little bit. We're going to get to another car that also shared the name with something else. <laughs> so you, you might be onto something. <laughs> uh, as it turns out, the Mitsubishi Model A was Japan's first series production car, period. So they basically made the first Japanese car. Okay. It was a four-door, seven-seat sedan. That's a lot of seats. Seven seats. How does that work with four doors? Maybe you have a lot of kids in Japan. You just had to do it. I guess so. Featuring a, quote, town car body style with the open driver compartment separated from the enclosed passenger cabin. Okay, so it's basically three rows because you have your driver compartment up front with a bench seat and then two benches in the back cabin. This thing looks pretty cool. Oh, yeah. It looks pretty cool. The Model A was powered by a front mount, 35 horsepower, 2.8 liter inline four engine driving the rear Actually, I take it back. The one that I'm thinking looks pretty cool was actually uh, modified by West Coast Customs. (laughs) 
<laughs> if you Google it, it's the first result. Like, uh, wow, they're really, really fashion forward with the wheels. Very <laughs> modern seeming, interestingly yeah. enough. The regular one just looks like a car. It like just an looks old car. like an old Model A, but yeah. Japanese. Yeah. Yeah. So big old four cylinder driving the rear wheels, which propelled it to a top speed of um, 26 miles per hour. Huh. 60 miles per hour, Chris. Wow. Yeah. It, in total, only 22 Model A's were ever built between 1917 and 1921. So it did what? Say that again, 67 miles per hour? 60. 60. Well, the Model A uh, went 65, so. Oh, got to beat. The Ford Model Got to beat. They also made a lot more Ford Model A's than 22. Yes, that's probably also true. Yes. The cars were extremely expensive to produce. That's probably why they only made 22 of them. They were built entirely by hand at the company's Kobe shipyard. Well, they, they didn't them. have an assembly line, I'm going to guess. Right, exactly. Uh, make no mistake about it, these were high-end luxury cars with the interior finished in the highest quality lacquered white cypress. What did these things cost? Do we know? Uh... No, because they it, had to have been expensive. Well, it, it couldn't compete with the cheaper American and European competition. And Mitsubishi halted production after four years of any cars. They basically oh. didn't sell any because they were way too expensive. Way too expensive. And I'm wondering what the infrastructure for driving around in, in early Japan would have been like. Probably not ideal. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, regardless, Mitsubishi became the largest privately held company in Japan by 1920. At this time, they were focused on building aircraft engines, which then expanded in development of full aircraft. As Japan became involved in World War II, Mitsubishi was tasked with building everything, including battleships, aircraft carriers, and most notably, the Zero. Yeah, well, we know what that is. The Mitsubishi A6M Zero was a fighter built for the Imperial Japanese Navy. Now, Chris, a 1943 U.S. Navy training video explains how to identify the plane during combat. All right, go on with the engine. Engine, radio, Mitsubishi version of our cyclone. That's right. There are twin row, 14 cylinders. Now for the fuselage. Fuselage. Blunt nose with a spinner on it. Cockpit canopy sits on the fuselage. Retractable landing gear with fairing plates. Say, there seems to be one gear missing, sir. The gears are operated hydraulically. As a result, the wheels retract alternately. I guess there are a couple of things I don't know about this airplane, sir. Glad to hear you admit it. That's the beginning of wisdom. The wings and the fuselage are in one piece made of dual aluminum. Uh, there's another feature worth noting. The entire fuselage is flush riveted. With the result, there are very few protuberances to cause wind resistance. The length is 28 feet, 5 inches. There's a pair of machine guns mounted in grooves above the cowling. They're 7.7 .7 millimeter, and they're synchronized to fire through the propeller. I hope you don't ever get them on your tail. I'm with you there, sir. <laughs> All right, finish her up. Tail. Leading edge of flat surface tapers more than trailing edge, with the fuselage extending to a point beyond it. Leading edge of vertical piece tapers more than trailing edge. Tail is pointed, curves out away from the nose. I guess that's it, sir. Good enough. As you probably know, there are three types of zeros. One is a single float plane without rigging. All three have slightly varying characteristics, but this is the type you're most apt to tangle with, so get to know her, all of her. Yes, sir. I'll look for the balls of rouge on her wings and fuselage. And I wouldn't depend on that if I were you. The Japs have a neat trick of painting her all sorts of colors, sometimes even like our P-40s. Coffee? Uh, no, thanks. Well, sir, how soon do I get a chance to knock one of them down? Soon enough. Hopefully down. But don't get any idea if the zero is a pushover. 
with 340 miles an hour top speed, service ceiling of 35,500 feet, a normal range of 700 miles, increased by a droppable extra fuel tank, there's not much she can't do. They built her light and maneuverable, threw away the armor protection for the pilot and the self-sealing gasoline tanks. She only weighs around 5,200 pounds, fully loaded, and has a horsepower of over 900. And when you see the speed with which she climbs, you'll appreciate what I'm saying. There's just no use trying to dogfight a zero. That's out. Your best bet is to hit fast, either the wings or just behind the cockpit. But if you miss, don't hang around. Really as bad as all that, sir? Seeing's believing. If I were you, I'd take my word for it. Yes, sir. So, these things really were formidable. Like, you did not want to get in a dogfight. Just the, there's no armor plating for the, there's no for the pilot. They basically said, let's make them as light as possible. With a 900 horsepower engine. Yep. And uh, the, fl- the, fl- the flush riveting is pretty cool, too. The the riveting, the you know, you press a rivet yeah. to get it to stay. That happens on the inside of the chassis. Oh. And so there's it's just basically totally flush. There's no protuberances yep, whatsoever. Really, really neat. Yeah. Um, so I found that interesting. That was basically a training video that they showed to U.S. Navy men. Basically, before they went As out in, and saw these. Basically, hit and fucking run. Yes, that's exactly y- what they were saying. Yeah. You don't want to be in- involved. Uh, we can't really talk about Japanese wartime without touching on some of the horrors that went on as well. Mitsubishi made use of forced labor during this time. Labors include allied POWs as well as Chinese citizens that they captured. In the post-war period, lawsuits and demands for compensation were presented against the Mitsubishi Corporation, in particular by former Chinese slave workers. On July 24, 2015, the company agreed to formally apologize for this wartime labor and compensated 3700 65 Chinese laborers on July 19th, 2015. The company hey, have a bunch also, of money now that you're 97 years old. Yeah, the company also apologized for using American soldiers as a slave laborers during World War II, which to their credit was the only Japanese company to really bring it up and apologize for doing so. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming there's quite a bit of bitterness there. Yeah, I'm sure. There you know, is. hey, you want us to apologize? Well, hello, you freaking nuked our country. Yeah. Why are we apologizing? True. Yeah. Uh, and this, the, this stuff where we apologize later. What are we doing? Well, I think that's why many people just don't just, go let's there. Just, let's just move on. Right. We are where Which we are. I guess we don't is need... maybe what they're trying to do. Yeah. Maybe they're just trying to put it to rest so we can right. just move exactly. on. Because uh, all these people that work at Mitsubishi, everyone there, every single person that has anything to do with that company was either not alive or had nothing to do with anything. Right. So why are they apologizing for right. it? It's, it's a meaningless apology. It's too late. It doesn't matter anymore. Let's just move on with our lives. Yeah. Hard to argue with that which we will do with our story as well. So at the end of World War II, the many separate businesses under Mitsubishi name were disbanded as part of Allied stipulation. So after the Japanese surrender, they disbanded Mitsubishi because it is this huge conglomerate. So it wasn't until 1954 when more than 100 individual companies that had once been part of Mitsubishi combined together to reestablish Mitsubishi Corporation once again. Today, the Mitsubishi Group is made up of about 40 individual companies and continues to manufacture everything from air conditioners to airplanes. Are they the ones that made that cool little toaster that we talked about that one time? What? (laughs) They made the toaster where you can set it to make your toast just perfect. You don't remember that? I do not remember this. It makes bread and toast. It's perfect. Bread, Bread is toast that's just cooked, Chris. (laughs) <laughs> I've never <laughs> I've actually ne- bread is already cooked so toast is just burnt bread when you think about it well it doesn't have to be burnt 
It's brown. Why are we talking about this toaster? Because it was a cool toaster. I don't know. I don't remember this. All right, so there are three major businesses, Chris. You have Mitsubishi Bank, which in 2004 became Japan's largest bank. I'd never heard of that. Okay, There's, hold on. What? All right. What is this toaster? This is the toaster. What is it? Um, <laughs> it looks like raw, even though it is baked. A new style bread oven that delivers fluffy raw toast. We bake one sheet of bread carefully by original. This is translated. Original sealed Wait, heat. Wait, was this at like the CES? Conf- yeah, that, that's it, why it we talked about plate it. heating method and realize soft, soft texture like soft break bread to the ear. <laughs> you, can, I, you can enjoy the difference in texture with five levels of baking. <laughs> fluffy, light, normal, dark, and crisp. This is the legacy of the samurai. <laughs> <laughs> it does uh, look like tasty. It looks like the, the Texas toast bread that you get. I okay. That's a little different than Japanese bread. Texas toast. Yeah. Well, they will. You know. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, which includes Mitsubishi Atomic Industries. The toaster is, nuclear- is four hundred dollars, by the way. Four hundred dollar toaster. Cool. I don't want it for my birthday, for the record. Okay. Uh, Mitsubishi Chemical, Mitsubishi Hitachi Power Systems. So Hitachi is Mitsubishi, too? Yes, a power generation division, which also is known for the Hitachi personal massager, Chris. Yes. Yes. Which can be a little overboard from time to time. Yep. We'll leave that at that. (laughs) Nikon Corporation is owned by Mitsubishi. No kidding. Yes. And of course, Mitsubishi Motors. Before we continue, however, let's take a moment to talk about Patreon, Chris. Now, let's do it patreon.com slash overcrest that is where you can go to support the show just five bucks that's it yeah as low as five dollars a month we also have a lot of cool products coming your way if you are a higher tier member um and just basically stuff's on order yeah it's on order (laughs) it's it's coming eventually so yeah we just really really appreciate the support from everyone there and we always Love and appreciate that. Exclusive content. I have another story coming out later this month as well. Great. Let's keep going. All right. The first post-war vehicle developed by Mitsubishi was, remember I alluded to this, they stole the name from something else, the 500. The Ford, the Mitsubishi 500? The 500. Like like instead of the 500 Galaxy? No, instead of the... uh, Chrysler 500? No. I was thinking, well, let me tell you about it first. The Fiat 500? Yes. Yes. Okay. That makes more sense. It was released in 1960 to a growing economy and a new demand for a vehicle middle-class families. The 500 was powered by a rear-mounted, air-cooled, two-cylinder engine with a single carburetor, producing 21 horsepower. Was it a Solex? It was not. Really? I don't know. No, Solex is not Japanese. Is it Spanish? What's Solex? Yes. Okay. Well, what it's European. It what would it have been? What's what's the carburetor? Makuni. Makuni, that's it's the It's definitely one. a Makuni yeah, on there, for yeah. sure. So, yeah, it, although not at all related. I have a question it, for it you. It does even sidebar. resemble... The uh, Fiat 500 does. It, it looks like it. Oh, it looks like the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Question: What? Why do we not have slide carbs on automobiles? They're always on motorcycles and right. snowmobiles and stuff like that. Right. And they kick ass because then there's nothing in the way of the air. It's just an right. open space. Whereas if you have a butterfly, there's always something in there in the way. Why do uh, we not have slide? Well, Porsche racing engines. I understand slide that. Bu- I'm talking carbs. about like high performance cars, even. Um, Why don't we have them? I don't know. They must say because we don't have carburetors anymore. But actually, even your throttle body could be a slide throttle body. Why not? I don't know, Chris. We need to get on this. Maybe they get. You know, there's always stories about slide throttles getting stuck. Maybe it's a reliability issue. Mm. We should find out from somebody who knows about slide throttles. Yeah, let's do it. 
Um, moving right along. The most impressive feat was the fact that Mitsubishi decided to take the 500 racing on its first year and won. I know, I know why. I'm what? thinking about this. Okay. Okay. Good. So let's say you have the round. Uh, you're just looking. You're looking down the, the throttle. The throat. The throat of, of the throttle body. Yes. When you have a butterfly, it's open evenly on both sides. So you have the top side and the bottom side, so air can flow by either side, and it's a little bit more symmetrical. Right. When you have a slide, it's moving from one side of the right. Of the, so it's only really going to operate very well at wide open. If it's not wide open, it's probably going to be a little more difficult for air to pass through without having turbulence. Potentially. That's my thought. Okay. Ones and zeros. <laughs> Obviously. All right. So they took this little 500 racing. It won its first entry ever into an international motorsport event, the 1962 Macaw Grand Prix. Did they beat a Fiat 500? Uh, they probably race? did, actually. <laughs> Not only did it win the Grand Prix, it also set the track record that year, which I think is pretty impressive. It's first year out. Fast forward to 1971, Mitsubishi sells its first car in America, which was... Simply rebadged as a Dodge Colt. The Dodge Colt was a Mitsubishi. That's yes. right. That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Because they that. were like, we're not going to call it some Japanese car yet in 1971. Instead, the Dodge Colt. 1974 saw the debut of a legendary model, the Lancer. And in fact, the Lancer's debut year, it dominated the Australian Southern Cross Rally with a first, second, third place sweep, garnering Mitsubishi Motors' fourth rally title overall. 1976, Mitsubishi Motors developed their breakthrough silent shaft engine technology. Essentially, this was the first use of a balance shaft. Chris, what is a balance shaft? We just talked about this last week. We did, actually. It basically runs off. The, uh, the 944 has the balance shaft. Yes. With a large displacement four cylinders. Exactly, yeah. An inline four-cylinder engine, the movement of the connecting rods is not symmetrical throughout the crankshaft rotation. During a single crankshaft rotation, the descending and ascending pistons are not always completely opposed in their acceleration, giving rise to a net vertical force twice in each revolution. Now, these are referred to as second-order vibrations. This isn't a huge issue until manufacturers started to produce larger displacement four-cylinders. Soon, the engines would shake themselves apart as manufacturers tried to get more power from four-cylinders with larger displacement. So, enter the balance shaft. Balance shaft is a separate shaft parallel to the crankshaft and has counterweights that spin at the same frequency as these second-order vibrations. So it's interesting to note that Mitsubishi actually licensed this design out to other manufacturers. In fact, as we just talked about, when Porsche began to develop a larger inline four for the 944, they licensed the balance shaft design from none other than Mitsubishi. Supposedly, Porsche paid a royalty of $8 to Mitsubishi for every car they sold. That's not. That seems like not very much. No, it's not. Yeah. Anyways, jump ahead to... Hey, eight, we'll pay you $8 so our motors don't blow up. It seems like it should be worth. <laughs> it should have been worth more, more money. I'm like, you would think so. negotiation table was a little yeah, lopsided. Got on that. Germans walked away pretty well. Yes, they did. Uh, jump ahead to 1982, Chris. That's the year when the Americans were able to buy an actual Mitsubishi with the launch of the Tridia, Cordia, and Starian models. The Starian, yes. Yeah, the Starian the was Starian. awesome. 1985 was a red letter year for the manufacturer. We're almost to the best Mitsubishi of all time. We're getting there. But 985, that's when they entered the Montero into endurance racing. Not the one. 
I like the Montero. It makes history by winning the Triple Crown in its first appearance at the Paris-Dakar Rally. 1.4 million cars per year, Mitsubishi is amongst the smaller manufacturers on the world market. However, the company shines with innovative strength and successes in the world of motorsport rather than size. Example, Pajero. In 1983, the new off-roader surprises the experts in the Paris-Dakar rally with a win in the production-oriented category. A significant image advance for Mitsubishi at a time when nobody had ever heard of four-wheel drive and SUVs. In the following years, the Pajero became the most successful off-road race car in the world. Twelve Dakar wins in 25 years, an unbelievable record, which one person can surely explain. The three times Dakar winner and Pajero, Stefan Peterhansel. I think experience is really important. Mitsubishi has 25 years experience in the Dakar. They are successful because they never rest on their laurels. That guy talks really fast. Yeah, he does talk quite fast. <laughs> okay, so that was the Pajero, a.k.a. the Montero. Those are pretty cool. I had a Montero Sport back in high school. I yeah. love that little thing. Yeah. yeah, super short wheelbase. I would spin that thing out into ditches way more than I Didn't care that, to admit. Doesn't it have like the little meter that shows like how the far inclinotom- the thing? In, inclinotom- inclinometer. So inclinometer. 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 Easy for you to say. Yes. <laughs> but yes, it did. But I think, I don't know if we're getting there soon, but I really like the, the Gallant VR4. 1987 saw the release of just that, the Gallant VR4. With the legendary 4G63T yes, motor. Awesome motor. It was the first vehicle to feature an active electronically controlled suspension and received Mitsubishi Motors' first Car of the Year award in Japan. It was also named Motor Trend Magazine's Import Car of the Year that same year. The thing was four-time, the VR4s were full-time all-wheel drive, too. Yes, they were. Yeah. In 1990, Mitsubishi Motors launched the iconic 3000 GT. That thing had four-wheel steering, didn't it? The VR4 model of the 3000 GT did. Twin-turbo V6, all-time four-wheel drive, active suspension, active aero, and four-wheel steering. It was Motor Trend's import car of the year again when 1991 with that VR4 model. So what you're saying is Mitsubishi was really cool in the 80s and 90s. They kind of were. Yeah, they really were. And uh, I had to look up. I knew we were going to be talking about this. So I wanted to try and figure out what happened to J- J- the Mitsubishi. Yeah. I just want to read you a quote from the CEO okay. or, or the guy that's in charge of pretending to be the CEO and ruining the company. Mitsubishi's focus is now SUVs, crossovers, four-wheel drive, along with alternative fuel technology. Mitsubishi has moved around doing different brand positionings, whether it's been space car style vehicles or sports car <laughs> derivatives. Ugh. Evo, it's not that... It's not had that clarity of focus. Okay. So how he's does, talking about the Mitsubishi Evo, which we're going to get to in a minute. As a business that sells 1.2 million cars worldwide, in a global sense, it's not big business. If you try and be <laughs> if you try and be all try to be everything in different segments of the car market and follow trends like sports cars, it would be difficult to be economically viable. Even if Mitsubishi did listen to enthusiasts and add performance cars back to its lineup, Lindley doubts they'd be profitable, saying, I don't know how many people focus in on that now. I don't think it's a large segment of today's car market. Wow. Fuck that guy. Idiot. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Because as we're going to get into more and more, Mitsubishi was innovative. They yeah. were really making some incredible things. If you think of, you know, now you say, oh, well, I had four-wheel steering and active aero. What's the first car that you th- comes to mind that you think of as having active aero? Ferrari. Or a McLaren. Yeah. Or something like that. This was, this was a car that 
not everybody could go and buy, but it was something that was... It was attainable. It was attainable. And the 3000 GT, I remember seeing those on the road. They always seemed so wide and like... Just, it, it was a sports car, It was man. a sports car. It really, truly was. And it's it's sad to see. Yeah. It's really sad. Uh, the early 90s also saw Chrysler and Mitsubishi enter into a joint venture. The 50-50 ownership circumvented any import restrictions for Mitsubishi while offering Chrysler new subcompact vehicles, which were the Eagle Talon, Plymouth Laser, and Mitsubishi Eclipse, all the same yep. vehicle. Yep. 1992. 19 what? <laughs> <laughs> In 1992, Chris, they released... The Mitsubishi Lancer Evolution. This was the car that would take the rally world by storm. Speaking of the rally world, Chris, in 1998, Mitsubishi was its most winningest in racing. With Montero's domination of the Dakar Rally with a top four sweep, they came in one, two, three, and four, all those Monteros, an FIA world-class cup cross-country rally win, and Lancer Evolution's victory in the World Rally Championship. This culminated in 2007 when Mitsubishi set a record for seven straight Dakar Rally wins, their 12th championship overall. You don't realize how dominant they were in rally racing. Well, you always hear about, you know, when you think of, we're talking about history, right? So then always, oh, Group B, Group B, and oh, the Audi Quattro, blah, blah, blah. These cars were just absolutely just as dominant, yes, in my opinion, as some of the Sport Quattro stuff. Exactly. 2008 saw the release of the last generation of the Evo, the Evo 10, and with it, the last great car from Mitsubishi. Yeah, the MR. I think it was the last. The Evo MR was the last Evo one, right? 10 MR was yeah. really cool. Yep. So What's great is seeing those little arrow spikes on the roof, but they're on like a Lancer. Yeah. Which is like, but they're on like the stock four-cylinder thing. And they got to, oh, I forget what they called those, those little Venturi things where yeah. it's supposed to straighten the airflow. To go over the spoiler. Exactly. Right. Um, okay. So you read a quote by their CEO about yeah. basically the thought. So what actually happened? What led to that mindset? Well, the recession in 2008 hit Mitsubishi hard. In an effort to save the company, venture capitalist Carlos Gosen stepped in. Wait, doesn't he own F1 companies? <laughs> yes. So this is the man that Teams, 1999 rather. spent $5 billion to rescue Nissan. With another $2.5 billion, he acquired 35% controlling interest in Mitsubishi. Gosen appointed himself chairman and promptly steered the company in a new direction. The Renault-Nissan-Mitsubishi Alliance is the fourth largest auto group in the world after Toyota, Volkswagen AG, and General Motors. Their new singular focus is, not surprisingly, to develop electric vehicles. Now, while that's a far cry from the Samurai Yatoro Omoski shipping company, the history and heritage of the three-water chestnut brand is certainly worth celebrating on this day. Their 150th anniversary. That's great. I mean, it's it's really sad to see where the company's gone. And Carlos Gosen's basically in jail now. Or like, really? Isn't he the guy that put himself into a cello know. case? And <laughs> remember that we talked about that. He put himself in like a. I thought that was uh, something to do with the Gambala, right? No, no, no. That was the. Uh, 
the Nissan guy. That's this guy. Really? Carlos Kosin. Yeah, I think he put himself in like a cello case and shipped himself to Oh, Islam. I do remember this. Yeah, just to get away from Japan because he had evaded taxes or something yeah. like that. Yeah, not great. Not, not a, great not a, at not a good look. And, it, you know, it's it's disappointing. And I remember thinking when the, the Evo basically got canned, I'm like, well, that's it for them. Even the Evo, Another one bites the dust. Even the Evo 10 wasn't as good as the early models. I would love, my pick would be an Evo 8 MR. I want a Galant VR4. That actually be pretty cool yeah. too. Well, let's. I'll take a. I take a. I take an Eagle Talon for just whatever. I the don't care. TSI. Yeah. yeah. Why not? Just because those also had the four B or the four G sixty three. I was going to say the four BT, which is a Cummins. That's not <laughs> what they had in those. That's a much different engine. They had and the Mitsubishi Eclipse had that cool like spoiler. Oh, on the, the back. weird nineties round. Yeah. Wing. I remember lusting after those in the nineties yeah. when I was a kid, just being like, "Wow, that thing looks like it could just." drive upside down and looks like it would be so fast and obviously they weren't really from the factory but the all-wheel drive yep turbo motor that everybody blew up because they just turned the they, boost oh up. yeah just all the boost it was uh it was a it was that a was a time. time yeah it was it was a time well thanks for that story um before we go i want to remind everybody to head over to patreon.com slash overcrest support the show please we need it we we could really use your help supporting the show keeping the lights on over here and if you haven't yet hit that subscribe button and leave us a five-star review we like seeing those come up especially the funny ones that are we'll see you guys on Monday. take care